Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles today, please, to the book of John in the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 20. Thank you. I'd like to talk to you this morning about a special evening church service. Some of you in our church can remember those days. We went to church all the time. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and a few other nights that we created some things for people to go to church. And I tell people when I talk a, a little bit about the church that almost everything good in my life happened in the church. I gave my life to Christ in the church. I uh, surrendered to preach the gospel in the church. My wife and I met in the church. We raised our family in the church, and uh, we love the church. Uh, I guess we're just going to be here to the end of the road in the church. And I think it's a good ride, so to speak, because it's uh, whenever a person comes to Christ, they have a desire in their heart to gather together with other people, uh, to get together in the things of God. That's what the church is about. Let's look at John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. These disciples in this special evening church service were the seeds of the church. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I find this interesting. Uh, these people were afraid that they were going to be the next disciples on the cross to follow Jesus in death, and all of a sudden they went from fear to gladness to joy. Uh, in the presence of Jesus, there is joy. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you, and as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And for those of you who are regular readers of your Bible, you know that this is one of the illustrations of what we call the Great Commission. You know, the Great Commission is when the Lord says, listen, you guys, I want you to go out and change the world. And I think they probably looked at each other and said, you do? We're just trying to hide away right now from the Jews so we don't get killed. We're supposed to change the world? That's what Jesus says right here. In this passage of Scripture, verse 21, As my Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this, this will be their ministry right here, verse 23. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so the ministry is about forgiven forgiving sins and for those who have their sins not forgiven for us to be clear about the consequences of that. This gathering here in John chapter 20 is without precedent. The churches where peop the people of God are assembled, in fact the, the word assembled right here is in verse 19. They were together. It's not the building, it's not the property. Uh, the, church is, the church is the people. Uh, there are some churches that never have a building. 
There are some churches today that are meeting on this, the Lord's Day, uh, like this meeting right here. Some of them are even meeting in the, in the forest somewhere because they're afraid. They'll be discovered. This service uh, would be the first in a long line of services that reaches all the way down to our church this morning up here on top of this hill. This service took place on Resurrection Sunday evening. This has been a busy day of appearances for Christ. Remember, let me just review it for you this morning. First of all, you remember uh, the person that he showed himself to first. That was Mary Magdalene. She went to the tomb early. She represents very well the people who are the most delivered as the people who are the most devoted. In uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Jesus said this, I tell you, her sins, they are many. They've been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. Sometimes that's the way it is. Sometimes people who are so deep in their past life and so on the wrong side of life, whenever they come to Christ, they, they completely flip around and they are the most devoted because they are the most forgiven. That was Mary Magdalene. Her life was, to say the least, a living hell. She had seven demons. I think one would be more than any of us could handle. She had seven of them. And I'm sure that she bore in her body and in her mind the scars of demonism. No wonder she was so committed to God once he delivered her and cast the demons out of her. Jesus appeared to her first. And then there was this other group, uh, which I've overlooked for years. You know, it's like many times in the Bible, you read something for years, you never see it. Then all of a sudden you say, oh, it's there. I never saw that before. The other women, that's the second group of people that Jesus appeared to. Mary Magdalene was one of them. And the Bible says in Luke 8, 3, that they ministered to Jesus of their substance. They had of what they had. They reached down in their pocket and they said, how much do we need today? They contributed their resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Um, this is why I'm asking you, our congregation, this summer to pray that God will provide our needs financially. I know that um, most of our congregation, they, they take care of things on a regular basis, but in the summer it gets a little hard. It really does. I'm just going to be honest with you. And so we have to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, give us the funds. Help our people to be, uh, to be faithful so that we can be in the category of the other women. I want to be in that category, somebody who consistently takes care of the things of God. And then there was Peter, number three. He needed to be reassured by Christ that failure is not final. And then last week, we remember we heard about the, the two on the road to Emmaus. And so today we uh, come to this Sunday evening service, I want to call it. The ten apostles were there in the upper room, and Thomas wasn't there. Judas was gone. Uh, the day starts out with the resurrection and now ends with the Lord's disciples behind locked doors. And I'm, I'm presuming that they are wondering what they're going to do next because they're all afraid. I found a letter. You can find almost anything on the Internet if you just type in the right thing, you know. I found a letter by uh, an ancient letter. Actually, it was written in the year 107 A.D. That's a long time ago. And it was written from a guy named Pliny. 
to the Roman emperor at that time. His name was Trajan. And this is what he said about Christians, 107 AD. This is what he said. They meet together on a stated day before it was light and sing among themselves alternately a hymn to Christ as God. 107, Christians were meeting together singing to Jesus as God, the deity of Christ. And that they bound themselves with an oath not for any crime, but not to commit theft or robbery or adultery or to break their word and not to deny a deposit when demanded. These people were good people. They came together and they said, listen, we're going to live the right kind of life. We're going to live the life that Christ told us to live. So Trajan's reading the letter and says, that doesn't matter to him. You know why? They wouldn't bow down and worship him. And many of them lost their life simply because they wouldn't worship the emperor of Rome. And so uh, here Jesus comes together in this assembly. He appeared to them. This is uh, proof number five on the first day of resurrection. Actually, in Luke chapter 24, verse 37, the first, their first reaction when they saw Christ just enter the room was they thought they saw a ghost that wasn't really real, wasn't Christ. The Bible says that this took place, you'll notice here in verse 19, on the first day of the week. This statement is also made in chapter 20, verse 1. The church adopted the first day of the week as the day that they got together to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ was raised on Sunday, the first day of the week, church said, hey, this is the day we want to celebrate the resurrection. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, the Bible says on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul departed the next day. He spoke to them and continued his speech until midnight. And for those of you who know the story there, that was a long sermon, but it was on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16:2, Paul said on the first day of the week, each week, you should each put aside a portion of money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. And I think that Paul is here trying to accent the, the, idea, the idea of systematic giving. It's good to give systematically, week by week. We encourage our people to do that so that you don't wake up one day six months down the road and say, oh, I forgot to give to the church, and so let's figure it all out. And then you look at it and you say, oh, that's way too much. So if we do it regularly... It's a whole lot easier to do it. He said, on the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside a portion of money you have earned. Uh, let's gather the funds on that day. And so Sunday, though, was, uh, was a day that was not commanded in the Bible for us to uh, set aside as special, but it, be, it kind of evolved. That's just the way it happened. We're not to limit our, our worship to any particular day of the week. We're to worship the Lord every day of the week. Amen. I mean, that's, uh, when I wake up in the morning, that's what I think about. It's time to worship the Lord. Time to acknowledge his presence in my life. Uh, this, is a, this excites me, the first thing to do in the morning. Acts 2.46 says this, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. What were they doing in the temple every day? They were worshiping God, the church. Uh, what were they doing in these houses, coming together with 
we're going over to Bill's house today. We're going to worship the Lord in Bill's house. And tomorrow we're going to Jim's house and etc., etc. These house churches were places to worship. For the first 300 years, the church never had a building like we have. They just met in houses. And, of course, there are many, many churches today that that's all they have. They have a house. The Bible says here they met in fear. Who's going to be the next one on the cross? Uh, they would stop at nothing to stamp out this newest threat to Old Testament Judaism. They didn't understand that this was not a threat, but it was the fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism. And so Jesus comes on the scene. He comes right through the door, uh, wherever the door was, and he appears, and he brings assurance. Jesus gives assurance in the form of a message, and the message is this, peace be with you. Now, that was, a, that was a, a formal greeting, and if you go to the east side of Pittsburgh and walk down the streets of Shadyside, and uh, you find some Jewish people there, and you greet them, they're going to say to you, what? Shalom. Peace be with you. Uh, that was a greeting, and they, uh, they enjoyed sharing it with one another. But this meant more than shalom to them. Jesus was uh, giving them a bigger peace than just a greeting. He was actually giving them the peace that they needed in their heart. You know, it's one thing to greet someone and say, how you doing? Uh, but it's another thing to have peace in your heart. In the presence of Christ, we can have peace. This is why we are encouraging you this uh, summer. Guard your quiet time with the Lord. Because, you know, the, th the more filled up with the Word of God you are, the more peaceful person you'll be this summer. And you, and you know as well as I do, if you don't feed your soul throughout the summer, you start running on empty as a Christian. And things start really bothering you. And things are... But when you come back to the Word of God, God kind of like puts your head back on again and gives you peace in your soul that you can handle the situations that the world is throwing at you. And so Jesus says here, peace be with you. What is he talking about? He's talking first about, about peace with God. There's no greater thing than to have peace with God. You know that? Uh, the world, in the world, there's never going to be any peace, is there? No, not at all. But in our heart, there can be a lot of peace. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you can lay your head down on the pillow at night and have peace with God. Psalm 29.11 says, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And peace comes when we are forgiven of our sins. Peace comes through reconciliation with God. And when you make your peace with God and you reconcile with him, uh, peace floods your soul. Uh, whenever Jesus comes on the scene here, he comes and he shows to us a new body. Uh, let's call it a glorified body, an immortal body. Uh, no mention of unlocking the door, he just appeared. Uh, the body has changed, the resurrected body, and uh, the scripture says that our, we're going to be like him when we see him. We're going to have some sort of a body. I know one thing, it'll be a new body, and that, that makes me happy. Doesn't it make you happy? Uh, some of you are ready for that today, aren't you? I mean, just this minute, you would just trade this old tent in and get a new one. Well, uh, you're going to get a new one one of these days. You just have to wait a little while for it. You have to wait for this one usually to wear out. 
Then you get the next one. But you know, the next one seems to be a body that, uh, that has identifiable features. They recognized him. He had the wounds of the cross. But it's not limited to uh, the obstacles that our body is limited to. Jesus uh, was resurrected in a body, bodily form. Sixty years later, if you turn all the way back to the book of Revelation, you read this. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of a throne, and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into the earth, worship the lamb. Uh, in the book of Revelation, time and time again, Jesus is projected as a lamb in heaven. And I think that this is going to be a constant reminder to you and to me of what Jesus did and going to invoke in us a tremendous desire to praise him because of the price that he paid for our sins. Jesus was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He uh, went before his shearers as dumb. He was silent and he took our place as a substitute, a lamb. And so uh, Jesus has, that comes to and shows his disciples, look at me, I have this hole in my side and I have these marks in my hands. This is what I've done for you. And then uh, they said, yes, this really is Jesus. And then what he does is he talks about his mission in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, it was God the Father who sent God the Son into the world. Uh, in fact, when Jesus was praying in John chapter 17, he said this, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And so what we have to do is we have to say, okay, let's look at the ministry of Jesus, and let's look at my ministry. Every Christian, follow me please, has a ministry. A lot of times, you know, we say, well, this person's a professional minister. This person is on the church staff. This person does that. Every Christian has a ministry of the Lord, has a plan that God has devised for you to live out in life. All you have to do is get on that, on that wavelength. And when you get on that wavelength, God will open the door for you to show you the ministry that he wants you to do. But, but he says, your ministry is going to be a lot like mine. As my Father sent me, I send you. This is just not some Jewish rabbi talking to these disciples. It's God. Because in John 14, 9, he says this, He who has seen me has seen the Father. As my Father has sent me. He was sent out completely dependent upon the Father. And so are you, and so are me. Uh, so am I. We're sent out, we are sent out completely dependent upon the Father. I, I, I kind of like this verse in John chapter 5, verse 30. Uh, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Uh, Jesus said I, he subordinated himself to God. He was completely dependent on God the Father to tell him what to do. And so that's, that's you and that's me. We're completely dependent upon God to tell us what to do. Uh, as Jesus was the person for his time, Galatians 4.4 4 says, just in the right time, 
God sent forth his son. You and I, follow me please, you and I are the people for our time. See, we compare our ministry with Christ's ministry. He says, just look at what the Father did through me. I want the Father to do that through you. I want you to have a ministry like mine. He was a person for his time. We are the persons for this time. And uh, he said, listen, I'm going to send you out like the Father sent me out into the world. And then I want you to notice what he did. He breathed on them. And right before I came to church this morning, I looked up Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and the Bible says that, that God uh, created man and he breathed into him the breath of life. It's the same word. Whenever Jesus breathed into his disciples right here in John chapter 20, he breathed into them new life, the life of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is breathed into our life, we take on new life. We become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that there's always a little tension. And people ask themselves, you know, how does this relate to the day of Pentecost? Is this, here the Bible says, receive the Holy Spirit. I thought the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And so there's this uh, misunderstanding. There's this inability to come to correlate here. Some people believe that this event right here was simply a pledge that the Spirit would be given to the disciples at Pentecost. A lot of people believe that. There's another idea, though, that, that believes that, that here the mission of the church was inaugurated. Now, that's an interesting word, inaugurated, but not actually begun. I looked up the word inaugurate. And it means to induct into office by a formal ceremony. And don't you think we could count this little gathering of ten disciples and our Lord a formal ceremony, to be sure? It was inaugurated. I kind of look at it like, you know, whenever you go to a, uh, if somebody's building a new building, you know, you have all the dignitaries out there and they have their gold shovels, you know, and they all try to, like, take the first shovel and that's the inauguration but the the actual building doesn't start to happen until that bulldozer comes in in a week and starts to move the dirt around right and so I have to think that that this is indeed an inauguration right here here he did I think impart to them the Holy Spirit and on the day of Pentecost they were filled with the Holy Spirit and this makes sense to me because, because whenever we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. And, and we receive all of the Holy Spirit that we will ever receive. But the Holy Spirit doesn't receive all of us that he will ever receive, I hope. And so being filled with the Spirit means being controlled by the Spirit, under the control of the Spirit. And so there are people everywhere who are saved. They have the Holy Spirit. They are convicted, they are challenged by the Spirit, but they are not controlled by the Spirit. For the most part, some of them are under control of themselves, even though they're saved. Well, those two things came together on Pentecost. 
He breathed into them the Holy Spirit, that it made them alive to God. That was the inauguration. And then he said, I'm going to give you the ministry. And what does the ministry look like? Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven you. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And what that essentially means is this. You have the ministry in the church of forgiveness and unforgiveness. You are to pronounce forgiveness with authority. It doesn't mean that the disciples could forgive anybody's sin. God forbid. If they did, today it would be just a duplicate of the churches throughout history who sold forgiveness. They called it indulgences for money. And people spent money to be forgiven. Forgiveness is only conditioned on repentance, not works on money. And so the church is supposed to uh, preach forgiveness. It's supposed to be a place of forgiveness. Uh, we are to give the terms of forgiveness. What are the terms of forgiveness? Repentance. Repentance directed toward the one who is offended, and that's the Lord. And so this is our message. You can be forgiven, number one. Is there anyone beyond the realm of forgiveness of God? I hope not. I, I can do better than that. I know not. He has a heart as big as the world. And so when people say, listen, I've done too many terrible things. I, I, I don't deserve to be forgiven. We go, yeah, you're right, you're right. But God is bigger than that. God is bigger. He can forgive you. And so we say you can be forgiven, and we say you will be forgiven if you repent to him. Uh, Jesus said, if he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Just come to Christ, and he'll forgive you. And then we can say, follow me. We can say with authority, you are forgiven. We have the authority to say that. If you repent of your sins, we can say, listen, you are forgiven. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to wonder about it. You are, according to the teaching of the Bible. Uh, and so this is the message of the church. The message of the church is forgiveness, uh, but it's also to threaten doom as well, okay? Look at the next part. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And this talks about unforgiveness. What happens to people who are not forgiven? You know, it's great to talk about heaven and forgiveness, and boy, we love that. There's nobody that I know that doesn't want to hear about that. But, you know, whenever you flip the coin over and you talk about unforgiveness, you talk about unbelief and the consequences, hell is the reality of that. And there are not too many people just too interested in hearing about hell today, but the reason why we have Christ who came to die on the cross is because there is a, I believe, a literal hell. And Jesus was very explicit about that in Luke chapter 16. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And the reason why we love Jesus so much today is because he took our judgment on the cross for us so that we don't have to stand at the judgment of God. Whenever judgment day comes, we kind of slip right by that. He says, listen, you don't have to go over there. I already did that for you. I already paid the price for your sins. Uh, this is the Great Commission right here. Uh, 
in a nutshell, even as my father has sent me, so send I you. I heard a story about Jim. Jim, uh, Jim was reading the Bible and he got a passion to, to start to live like this. Like he had a mission and a purpose in life. He had a love for people, a burden to communicate the gospel, and he wrestled with the question how he could bring the message of Christ into a setting that seemed so far from him, how he could help people see the, and embrace the truth. Uh, the barriers seemed insurmountable, and the task appears virtually impossible, and I, I, I feel like this sometimes, and I know you do too. Even with all the obstacles in front of him, Jim knew that he had to try. And I think this is the key right here. You know, there are some people that read these things on the, in the pages of the Bible and they say, I can't, I'm not trying. Jim said, I'm going to try. God gave him a vision to make a difference in the lives of people. And for starters, this is what he did. He shaved his head right down to the skin. Now, you don't have to do that, though. He did. He shaved his head right down to the skin except one patch of hair that he let grow long. He began wearing it in a pigtail and then dyed it a different color so that it would fit in with those he was trying to reach. He also gave up his suit and tie and began to dress like the people he was trying to reach. He changed his eating habits, patterns. He worked hard to learn the vocabulary and the expressions in hopes that he would be able to effectively convey biblical truth in their everyday street language. Jim didn't do all this from a distance. He actually followed this. He moved into the neighborhood. And with these people, he tried to become their friends. It wasn't easy because their non-Christian lifestyle and their outright rejection of the message. Jim paid the price of loneliness, weariness, discouragement, criticism, he also lived with a daily rejection of most of those he wanted to reach. And he did this year after year. Jim owned the mission. As my Father has sent me, so send I you. Jim said, okay, I'll try that. He owned the mission. His life is a powerful illustration of evangelism against the odds. And today, generations later, countless people from neighborhoods he worked so hard to reach have come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Is it worth taking risk to reach lost people with the love of Jesus? Is it right to proclaim the gospel in ways that break a few paradigms, push back a few boundaries, and ruffle a few feathers? If you're not sure, you might want to ask the hundreds of thousands of Chinese Christians who have been touched directly by Jim. Or as he is more widely known, James Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission over a century ago. Uh, Jim owned uh, the mission. He went to China and he became one of them. You know, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, he breathes into you the Holy Spirit, and we're alive to God. And then you know what he says? Go out in your world and make a difference. Make a difference. And my closing thought to you this morning is this. 
is we have to try. Do you agree? We have to try. And when we try, God goes to work on our behalf. Let's try. Let's bow our heads in prayer. The mission is not only for Jim Hudson Taylor, but it's for Bill and Randy and Jane and Alice and all the other people you know around town who claim to be a Christian. That's the mission. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I want to encourage you to do that. He will forgive you. He wants to forgive you. Just open your heart to Christ now and invite him into your life this morning. And if you're here as a Christian and you've, you're kind of like the, the average Christian, you come to church and you pick up your Bible every now and then, but you're not too radical about it. I want to challenge you to the next stage today. Own the mission, okay? When you go to work this week, hey, look at that. Hey, this is the mission field right here, and I'm, I'm God's person. And so I'm going to do what I can to make a difference right here. I'm not going to just let these people fall off into a Christless eternity, at least without telling them, persuading them. We have to try. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the, the mission that you've called us all, and we need to be reminded constantly about this because we forget so easily. I pray today that, that you will drive these thoughts home to our heart, Lord, as we uh, go out into our world. Even today, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our invitation song today. And as we sing together, if you'd like to come and pray about anything that's going on in your life or the life of a friend, just feel free to do that this morning.
Well, I hope you were encouraged by being in the service today. I know that God always has something for us when we come together and meet in the Lord's house. Uh, let's walk out of here today and with this thought on